Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Happy Saturday, friends, or Sunday, or Monday, or wherever it is you are, or whatever date it is, wherever you are and you're listening. I am Darren Mott, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent. This is the Cyber Guy Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk cyber education with Ashley Guess. I met Ashley at the National Cyber Summit last year, and we had discussed having a longer conversation on educating the next generation of cyber warriors and, and educating the educators that educate those folks. So we're going to talk to her about that. It's a, it's a great conversation. We, uh, a lot of our, I mean, our careers seem to parallel uh, many ways at the very beginning of our careers, but we'll talk about that then. I did get some emails that folks uh, wanted to hear more of the news stuff at the beginning, as opposed to what I was doing with the education and threat piece. And I'll still kind of do that where I can, but I'm going to go back and uh, talk a couple of news articles because there were some things that happened or that I read this week that were interesting that I think is important for, again, for you to be aware of from a, one of them is a cyber threat issue. Um, and the other one is, is just generally uh, information about the top 10 most important cyber statistics you should know. So I do kind of hit both areas while doing the news at the same time. So let's start with, I'm going to start with this, this one from Buzzfeed. I don't go to Buzzfeed very much often, but this was an interesting article um, that got a lot of play uh, when I post on LinkedIn, but the title is, and this is from Emily Baker White, who is a news reporter posted yesterday, June 17th. And it is, ha- it is Father's Day weekend. So happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. But the title of this article, leaked audio from 80 internal TikTok meetings shows that U.S. user data has been repeatedly accessed from China. Now I'm going to do something I don't normally do on this podcast. And that's, I'm going to curse. And that is th- this, this, particular article is a no shit moment. If you didn't think that TikTok and the Chinese government was going to access the data on this when TikTok started to become a thing, then you need to get your head out of the sand. This is a, this, all this does is really confirm what I and others have been saying for a long time. So I'm going to read a little bit from the article. But for years, TikTok has responded to data privacy concerns by promising that information gathered about users in the United States is stored in the United States rather than China, where ByteDance, the video platform's parent company, is located. But according to leaked audio from more than 80 internal TikTok meetings, China-based employees of ByteDance have repeatedly accessed non-public data about U.S. TikTok users, exactly the type of behavior that inspired former President Donald Trump to threaten to ban the app in the United States. The recordings, which were reviewed by BuzzFeed News, contained 14 statements from nine different TikTok employees indicating that engineers in China had access to U.S. data between September 21st and January 2022nd, at the very least. Yeah, at the very least. I guarantee you it's been doing it since it started. But despite the TikTok executive's sworn testimony in an October 2021 Senate hearing that a world-renowned U.S.-based security team decides who gets access to the data, nine statements by eight different employees describe situations where U.S. employees had to turn to their colleagues in China to determine how U.S. uh, user data was flowing. U.S. staff did not have permission or knowledge of how to access the data on their own, according to the tapes. And here's the key thing. This is from a member of TikTok's trust and safety department in a September 2021 meeting. Everything is seen in China. Why is this a big deal? Well, because for a very, for a variety of reasons, the Chinese government gathers data about U.S. citizens for the purpose of committing espionage down the line, either now, in the future, 
or in the deep future. And not only finding people to commit espionage for them, but finding people to um, to compromise, to get intellectual property, to find ways into networks. And TikTok is just a collection platform for the Chinese government and their people that support them to do exactly that. So here's what I, here's what I would say. And I've said this, I've, I think I even had a podcast where a friend of mine and I talked about the dangers of TikTok. I'm going to repeat that here. As your kids use TikTok, as you use TikTok, that you can, you can pretty much assume that whatever data you are putting on there, whatever you're doing, talking about, if you're doing silly video, stuff like that, whatever. I mean, you know, is the Chinese government going to take your dance videos and do anything with them? Maybe not. But for folks that are younger, who maybe in 10, 15, 20 years become people who work in the U.S. intelligence community, whose goal is to protect the U.S. from nation-state actors like China, Russia, Iran, so on and so forth. They now have information, facial recognition information about those people. Where this becomes problematic, as I've said for a long time, is that if those folks are some kind of undercover officer for the CIA, an undercover agent for the FBI, whatever, then... China has that facial recognition, can identify who they truly are. So these, this is a huge intelligence collection platform, TikTok. If you think otherwise, stop listening to me, because obviously you, you um, continue to have your head in the sand about TikTok and don't really care. So this is a problem that's going to continue on. Now, TikTok may disappear and go away, but China will come up with something else that will entice folks to use it apps or you know get the dopamine hit stuff like that so it's certainly a problem china is going to deny this is any kind of big issue they are lying they will constantly lie they are there to protect themselves which you know it's the, gets the goal of nations is to protect their own and their own requirements so this is a longer buzzfeed article if i was to read it all it would take up the whole podcast i'm certainly not going to do that but absolutely go and read this article one thing that's interesting, we should note, Chinese nationals are not allowed to join TikTok. So if you're in China, you're not allowed to use, China, use TikTok for any reason because they know that then the U.S. could use it for the same thing. So if that doesn't tell you to stop using it, have your kids stop using it, nothing's ever going to. And so I just wasted five minutes of your time on that. But, you know, it's a thing about TikTok. You need to be aware of it. The other article I want to talk about is from Reuters from a couple of days ago, June 16th. This is... Uh, there is actually, actually, I'm sorry, I take that back. That's the wrong one. That's not the one I want. I'll come back to that one. This is from um, makeuseof.com. Don't know who that site is, but this was a pretty good article published a couple days ago by Katie Reese is the author. It says the 10 most important cybersecurity statistics you need to know. These are always interesting because they go to basically, I like them because they justify everything I've been saying for years. But a couple of things that, so I'm not going to read all 10. You can certainly go find the article and read it. Just put in top 10 most important cyber statistics you need to know and look at makeuseof.com and you'll find it. Um, but it talks a lot about phishing. Uh, phishing is an incredibly common type of cyber crime, and it can be very convincing and subtle in its nature with even the most experienced internet users falling for such swindles. Now I'm going to read, so let me do this. I'm going to read the 10, the 10 points um, I'm not going to talk to all the stats because actually this one really doesn't have a big stat piece to it, but whatever. Uh, but you can go back and look at it. So number two is phishing scam success rates in the U.S. are 74% of U.S. companies reported they fell victim to a successful phishing attack in 2020. 
That's not good. The most targeted industries for fishing in the U.S. are 78% of all. Um, I'm sorry, when it comes to fishing, uh, the targets, some industries more than others. Um, bah, 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 bah. And tech industry is the number one entity that is targeted by that. Ransomware attacks in the U.S. over the first half of 2021. There are over 2,000 complaints made to the IC3 about ransomware. These complaints alone amass $16.8 million in financial losses. Um, additionally, 32% of all ransomware victims agreed to pay the requested ransom in 2021. Frequency of ransomware attacks in the U.S. Uh, over half of the world's ransomware victims, 54.9%, live within the United States. Here's the big one. Here's the one that is important, that I think is important. Is It's called number six, cybercrime and human error. Surprisingly, a lot of cybercrime conducted in the U.S. Are, su are successful as a result of human error. In fact, and I love this stat because it justifies what I have been saying for 10 years, 95% of cybersecurity breaches are caused by human error, meaning some huge data leaks and financial losses have been a result of mistakes made by unknowing individuals or company staff. So um, the point here being, and, and here, here's another stat in this part that's interesting. On top of this, the average employee has access to 11 million different files. So any mistake can lead to huge problems. And this is why cybercrime continues to flourish because people continue to do the same things over and over again. They have bad passwords. They use the same passwords everywhere else. They click on links and emails. They open up attachments that have malware, all of these things, which goes to the heart of what Ashley and I are going to talk about in a minute. And that is education. In addition to educating the next level of, of cyber warriors that are, are designed to protect you, your family, and your business from cyber attacks, we need to educate everybody to understand the depth and breadth of the cyber crime, cyber risk area. I cannot say that enough. And I will say this, and I won't say that, I can't say this enough either. I'm here to help folks do that. Um, and that some, in most cases, I'll do it at no cost. So if you have questions about how to protect your employees, how to get people engaged, contact me, Darren at the cyberguy.com or Darren at getcybersmart.com. I have both of those emails with my two podcasts and I will do that. I also, as I'm saying this, I want to recommend the cyber, Get Cyber Smart podcast for everybody who is just trying to get into the understanding the cybersecurity risk. I do that one weekly and talk about different, different um, things regarding cyber uh, the cyber world. It's a quick seven to 10 minute listen. So, so I, I recommend you look out for that. Anyway, let's continue on here. Seven has to do with data breach damage. The average cost of a data breach now is roughly $4.24 million. So if you are impacted by a data breach, it's going to be expensive. Um, and over 212.4 million people were affected by data breaches in the U.S. in 2021 over 60% of the nation's population, meaning 60% of the, of the nation's population, their information was compromised in some kind of data breach. Number eight, COVID-19's global effect on cybercrime. The point here is that it has resulted in a 300% increase in reported cybercrime, according to the FBI. Frequency of cyber attacks. A computer is attacked by a cyber criminal every 39 seconds in the U.S. Doesn't mean they all get in, but every 39 seconds... Someone's getting attacked somewhere. And the overall cost of cybercrime in the U.S., this is number 10, you might be wondering how much cybercrime costs us. It's thought that the successful cybercrime attacks made in the U.S. have resulted in damages ranging between $57 billion and $100 billion, a truly mammoth amount. Additionally, it has been predicted that the cybercrime industry will grow to a value of almost $232 billion in 2022, with scammers finding more sophisticated and effective ways to trick victims. And that is the truth, because as I've said, 
As technology advances, bad guys are the first guys to figure out how to compromise those technologies and make bad things happen. So um, let's get to my interview with Ashley Guess, who is soon to be a associate professor or assistant professor, associate pro- assistant professor at the University of South Carolina. Currently, she is uh, ending her, her tour at the uh, Augusta University. So have a listen. Hope you enjoy it. Well, it's an honor to welcome back to the podcast, Assistant Professor of STEM and STEAM Education at Augusta University, Ashley Guess. Ashley, thanks so much for coming back to the Cyber Guy podcast. Darren, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we could we could figure it out. Yeah, we met at the National Cyber Summit back in September. And are you going back this year to that? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to sit down for a third time because I will be there somewhere. Uh, yeah, you'll be out there. Listen, that was awesome. And um, yes, my plan is definitely to go. I just got back from the NICE conference, which, um, you know, NICE is really a leader in cybersecurity and cybersecurity education for K-12 teachers. And um, so I'm I'm ready. Great. So my first question is going to go off topic from what I originally sent you. What's the difference between STEM and STEAM? I know what STEM is. Yeah, I don't know what STEAM is. I'm STEM and STEAM. <laughs> right. By my by my my um, thought about that is STEM is actually an educational approach, and I think we talked about that on the last podcast. Um, it it is a way of teaching that leverages the design process at its core. So it's really when teachers intentionally give students the opportunity to apply the um, content, i.e., the standards and the practices, i.e., the skills of math and science in the context of the design process with outcomes in engineering or engineering technologies. Well, the thing is, is if you look at the robustness of that design process, and a lot of people call it the engineering design process. Well, if you look at that, and then you look at the design process that underpins real arts. Now I'm not talking about, hey, here's a flower, color it. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about theater, visual arts, like real arts here music, um, spoken word, literature, poetry. Well, if you look at the design process that underpins those disciplines, it parallels the engineering design process. It actually leverages a little bit more creativity. So in theory, my premise is that the design process is equally as robust. And so therefore we should add arts, A, as an opportunity for students to showcase, to practice, to apply their learning um, intentionally, just like it was described for STEM. And you can almost say really that cybersecurity, which we're going to get into, is an art form almost in itself now. But we'll we'll hold that as we as it, we go uh, forward. Listen, it sure is. In fact, we I was just talking with a group from um, ITEEA, which is International Technology and Engineering Educators Association. And I belong to that. And um, we were talking about how cybersecurity is really situated in so many different areas, depending on which district, which school you're talking to. Um, so, yeah, it is really kind of blossoming as its own thing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk your career arc. What got you into education, especially collegiate or, you know, post-secondary education? What, as opposed to be, were you ever, were you a high school teacher first and became a professor? Or was it right from, right into Ph.D.? teach at college, that kind of thing. What Talk about your career arc. What what, what yeah. brought you here where we're at? Yeah, well, it's actually pretty interesting. I didn't get started teaching until I was 29. So before that, I actually was in sales 
and I actually was in science. But I called myself the reluctant scientist for many, many years, and I'll tell you why. When I was going through my bachelor's degree, of course, this was back in the 80s now, um, I really wanted to be in musical theater. I was really motivated by music and arts. And it was frowned upon many women that during the 80s were like, oh no, you can't do that because you can't, you know, you can't support yourself. You need to do something to meet the guys. And it was this very interesting dynamic. So I didn't do it. And I majored in biology because I like science as well. Um, it was a Bachelor of Science in Biology, so I had to do all the chemistry, all the, the calculus, all that. But I'll tell you, I always felt like a sore thumb, like the way my mind was working was not typical, right? So then I go to grad school. I'm working in um, cellular molecular biology. I just felt like a fish out of water. I loved doing it. It's just that I didn't belong. You know, nobody thought like me and everybody put it down. Can I say something? We, we have an almost identical yeah. career, career arc. When did you go to, when did you graduate college? Probably. I mean, what, what year did you graduate college? 88. Yeah. Same here. 88 biology major, biology major, originally, yes. originally pre-med biology major. And I didn't <laughs> study for the MCAT. So I bombed it. So I'm like, well, screw that. It can't be that. So I guess I will get into That's immunology. So I got into like cellular biology. I love cellular. I, for whatever reason, I had a great cellular biology professor and I said, immunology is the route Me I want to go. Went to university of Connecticut for an immunology PhD in about six months. And I said, boy, does this blow? I was like my own cohort. Yeah. I was by myself as I was a cohort into myself. I'm like, this really sucks. I don't have no interest in any yeah. of this. So anyway, sorry, I, I took away yeah. your story, but that was, it's just ironic that we're the same age, same age, and we're, we're neither one of us are, are doing biology. So <laughs> yeah. I, right. And that's okay. So, um, and then life happened. I got married, I had kids and I stayed home for a while. And then I um, ended up getting divorced and I ended up with, a situation where I had to support my kids. So of course, everybody's desperate for science teachers. So I went and did the deal, got certified to be a science teacher in the state of South Carolina. Okay. See, I raised your, Orlando, raising your the, hand Florida, the teacher in Florida, science teacher in Florida. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Parallel lives. Yeah. Um, and so, so I started teaching and actually this was, this was a big joke for me because, um, you know, I want to teach biology, but um, the only class that I ever failed the first time around was organic chemistry. Like I had straight A's, but organic chemistry was like, did, did that happen? I hate it. I didn't fail studies? it. I, I almost failed it, but I, I passed it. But by the skin of my teeth and I could have, I could not have cared any less. I liked the labs. The labs were fun, but just the classes, I had a horrible right. professor and I was like, I don't care. I'm not studying for these tests. Who gives a, can't care. My professor used to throw chalk at us. Okay, like that could never fly now, but he would throw chalk at you if you got the wrong answer. And it was just really intimidating. And so um, I almost I almost just didn't finish it. And I just, I don't know, I mustered it up somehow and retook it and got an A, right? Sometimes you just need a second look. So the big joke was, though for me was, I didn't want to teach chemistry. I did it because I had to, wasn't my thing. Well. So then long story short, my daughter and son ended up in this catastrophic accident. Um, that's when it, they, they literally, like my daughter died seven times mm. and came back. And um, the district where I had originally got a job, um, I couldn't live there anymore because I was alone. Their dad wasn't around and um, I had to go live near my parents for help. We didn't even know if she was going to live or die, right? And so 
And then my son ended up in the same accident with a body cast. So I, I interviewed on a whim with another district kind of near where I'm from. And um, they gave me the job, which was crazy, but it had to be chemistry. Yep. I thought God is laughing at me. Did you teach chemistry? Chemistry and, phys <laughs> and physics. <laughs> I taught biology my first year, first two years, maybe first year at one school. And, yeah. and then at another school I ended up going to, I taught biology for a year and then taught chemistry physics for the last couple until I joined the FBI. So yeah, ironic. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I'm certified in all sciences. Mm -hmm. Obviously you are too. So, um, so, yeah. And it actually, you know what, um, it was the right thing because my own struggle in that discipline made me a better teacher. If I'd have taught, right. And how did, how are your kids, how are your kids now? Are they good? Yeah, they're great. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Like, oh yeah. Your kids, so yeah, my your, oldest, your children. My daughter <laughs> yeah. is now um, 32 and she's working on her, hold on to your hat, her MFA in lighting design. So she's living the life I wanted to live. Yeah. <laughs> good for her. Yeah. That's funny because I mean? she really is. She's doing amazing. I will say She's this: at University if, of Tennessee. Yeah, if I'd have had if I'd have had me as a chemistry teacher in college, I'd have passed it because I made chemistry Thank interesting. You. I do think I used to. I mean, if you can understand the mole, you're good to go. You can do any chemistry. We were we were, we were delving into chemistry instead of cyber, but that's okay because this is a hobby horse of mine. I used to have them. The first thing I'd have chemistry students do. I have yet to, I've, it, this is the first time I've talked to another science teacher, so, is, is create, I had a, like an outline for a mole, an actual, the, the mole animal, and they had to make a stuffed animal right. for a mole. And I said, but you can have this mole on your desk during your test as, as a support, a support animal for your test. Support. And then a bunch of them <laughs> just gave it like, this one kid made one, which was about, which was huge. It was about the size of, you know, half of a body. And I ended up having them all around my room. It was awesome. It was great, but. Love that. Mm. You know what? And so you were bringing the arts in yeah, in different ways as yeah, well. Sure. And I used to do the icosahedron um, and use that for, what did I do? I, something I had, I, there was something, I went to some teacher's conference and there's a thing with an icosahedron that you made that had like information about the periodic table. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I had them all do that as well. And it was, you know, and I had this thing yeah. where for every test, because chemistry, it's all math, but it's a lot of memorization, memorization of math. And I said, you can take a, you can take a three by five index card, put anything you want yeah. on it. And you can use that yeah. during the test. Why yeah. well, some kids were like yeah. using, using, using uh, magnifying glasses to write Can as small as it? they could. Yeah. But you know what, just them writing it really helps them think about it. And probably they didn't mm -hmm. even need it. You know, it's just a support piece. And now shoot, they have their phones. So yeah, yeah, it's, well, it's a different game. I used to do what I used to do is they had a culminating um, event at the end of the year where they put on a theatrical production and they had to showcase all their chemistry learning through the theatrical production. Oh, nice. Um, we actually, yeah, we actually performed it at the Dis at Discovery Place in Charlotte one year it was called the late show with jeff gilbert so it was a takeoff on david david latterman you know mm -hmm. it was great they did a great job and and actually this is crazy so my my husband who i married eventually my current husband we've been married for 20 going on 23 years now he um adopted my older two which was wonderful but i met him because i taught his two younger siblings in chemistry very nice 
Awesome. So, 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 so how'd you get to, how'd you get to college? You're your assistant professor, obviously now. So you must've gone and got a P decided a PhD was the route to go. How'd you get to that point? Well, not, not for a lot of years. So I had enough. Cause I remember I went to grad school for cellular mm -hmm. biology. So I had enough to actually teach at the, um, community college level. So I taught high school for a long time. Then I went and taught in the community college, anatomy, physiology, microbiology, and general biology. And um, so I taught in South Carolina there. And then I got a chance to do, well, I really felt like I needed the chance. My, this is when technology was becoming a thing. And when online was becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I felt totally unprepared for all of it. And I could feel myself slide hiding into this higher ed bow tie kind of pocket protector, just standing there talking to you. And I thought, no way, I'm not doing it. So it was before STEM was a thing also, but I found one program in all of the United States and it was a Virginia Tech. And they were teaching about an integrative STEM educational approach. I specifically did not want to do science or math. I wanted to understand the intersections of these. Um, I really, really did. And so I went to Virginia Tech, my family, my husband supported me and we went to, um, we moved to Virginia. I started teaching in the community college in Virginia full time and went to school and learned this thing called integrative STEM education. And so my higher ed career started in the community college or technical college arena as a science professor. And then um, once I finished my, my doctoral work in integrative STEM education, I came to Augusta University because they were specifically interested in STEAM. Um, and so I started that there. And Georgia actually has been a really um, big, really forward thinking when it comes to STEM and STEAM education. Um, they have ways for schools to be certified. They have ways for teachers to have endorsements. Um, so it, it's been really good for the K-12. Now, Augusta University is kind of changing their, they can't be everything to all people. So they're really focusing more on the literacy in, in the College of Ed, just straight up literacy. And so uh, I decided it was probably a good time for me to kind of make a bow out and go somewhere where they're really focusing on STEM and STEAM education. So I got invited to come to University of South Carolina to teach in their new EDD program for STEM education. So I'm very, very, very excited to be starting there in the fall. Great. So, so for, so you're, you're, you're training teachers, is that correct? Or is it students? Is it, is it you training yeah, educators or? Okay. Okay. So you're okay. So that's a good, so that segues into hopefully the cybersecurity part of this piece. So how is, so, so looking at the cybersecurity personnel gap, it's very hard to find talented employees. Yeah. And how, how is our STEM or STEAM programs looking to help front that gap by having teachers that can get kids at a younger age initiated into the different areas of cybersecurity? I mean, because a lot of kids... Like, I just want to be a gamer. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to build games. I want to be a gaming programmer. I, I heard this yesterday. NASA has cyber camp going on here in Huntsville. So I went last night as a panel of some professionals. And we talked to the students. Um, and so it's a lot of, yeah. they had really good questions. So they had clearly had good teachers. So what is the, what, yeah. what area of educational, te uh, educating teachers are you focusing on to, 
to get them engaged in, in this arena, which is, you know, probably new to them. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because uh, with a colleague of mine, uh, Michael Nowakowski, um, he and I just finished and we're getting ready to submit a paper for review, um, looking into what is the approach that works to, to, to get kids into and hold them into in cybersecurity. That's the question because we all know there's a lot of different curriculum out there. I mean, mm -hmm. every time I turn around, I feel like somebody else is like, hey, get my curriculum. And you know, that is a huge distractor for teachers. And uh, it's like, what, which one works? And honest to Pete, a lot of them are great. They really are. A lot of them are great. There's also brand new standards coming out from um, cyber.org. There's the NICE framework, which preceded those standards a lot. I just really don't think that that is, when you talk to teachers, they're like, okay, give me what I need to know, but then how do I present it? Mm -hmm. This is the big question. What's the pedagogical approach that works? Um, and you know what? I got to lean back on some wisdom from Schulman, who um, he, he really talks about these pedagogies that lead you into a profession. He calls them signature pedagogies. So for example, if you're going to become a lawyer, you really need to train that lawyerly mind. I'm married to a lawyer. He likes to argue. <laughs> he likes to defend. He likes to do these. Okay. So, so he likes to interrogate. They specifically train that. Okay. So what is it? What is it? What do you need to train to get kids interested to have the mindset of somebody who will stay in cybersecurity. So we did this study and we interviewed a bunch of people. We did surveys and we did focus groups and, and, and we interviewed professionals, not teachers necessarily, okay, but people in the field. Our results came up with, we actually came found a very unique and pervasive lively mind that must exist for people to be, feel successful in the cybersecurity field. And this is like a person who does puzzles, who's interested in things that, like one guy does bonsai trees and, and one person um, um, specifically likes to take things apart and put them back together, maybe in the same way, maybe in different ways. Um, they're interested in many different things. They have this very interested mind, interested in things. We call it a lively mind. Um, so the question is, can you train that lively mind? The answer is yes. How do you do it? Through an integrative STEAM educational approach. That design process actually specifically shows outcomes for kids with creativity, with persistence, with interest, with questions, with answers, with failure, with, with resilience. All of those things have been documented as specific outcomes to the integrative STEAM educational approach. And how far back so, can you, how far, how young can you go to get them started in that? Like, you know, if you start in with seniors, they're, they're, they're whatever their pedagogy, exactly. That's what I said, they're too late. So how, how early can you start? Can you start at kindergarten? I, I have to tell you at Augusta University and in the state of Georgia, we have, uh, they have a, a, an endorsement for teachers which is computer science and cybersecurity. And we, we train teachers starting in kindergarten, kindergarten teachers, how 
to do this. Mostly it's about computational thinking, mm -hmm. but it's also teaching the teacher how to leverage you know, different contexts that are relevant, that are authentic to the kids in their world. This is a key piece. And it doesn't have to be, okay, we're gonna do a cyber challenge for kindergartners. That's not appropriate, but can we show them computational thinking? Can we encourage them to be creative? Can we encourage them to have that lively mind? You darn tootin' you can. In fact, I would submit to you, challenge is not to beat it out of them by the time they're in middle school. Mm -hmm. Because that's what happens. And let me just say something else for the, for the good of the group. So this is going back to my biology. Um, I don't know if any of you know about neural pruning. So neural pruning is something that body actually does and, um, you know, can start late, late middle school, early high school. If you don't use a pathway in your brain, your body goes and prunes it away like you'd prune a bush. Yeah. So to me, it seems logical if you're not allowed to be creative, if you're not promoting that all those years, elementary and middle school, when a high school kid would come to me or a freshman in college would come to me and say, I just don't think I can be creative like that. I just don't think it's in my head. Well, it probably isn't. Well, that explains why I cannot paint. I can't do pottery. Every time my wife wants to do something artistic, I cannot do it. Even if they tell me, if they show me how to do it, like the whole paint this line, it's still, my line is still not right. It's, yeah. we have these two pictures of rain, these two reindeer yeah. paintings. Hers looks like a reindeer. Mine looks like a reindeer with an extra chromosome. I don't know how else to put it, but yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> extra chromosome. You know, some people do have the proclivity on, and I'm not saying that they're, you know, some people are more creative than others. Sure. That's true. But you, you talk to a kindergartner, first grader, second grader, third grader, they have that lively mind. Mm -hmm. What happens? We sit them in a chair. We punish them by not having, you can't, you're up and down and you can't have recess. I mean, you know, I, mm -mm. Mm -mm. so how do counsel, you know, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. You know, I was going to say a lot of teachers are trying. They, they'll, so like, for example, I get this a lot. Okay, well, we're going to have our fifth graders work on um, the water problem in Africa. Okay, look, it is a good problem. It is a problem, but I ask them, how many of your kids have been to Africa? Right. Yeah, I'm gonna right. say not a lot. I'm what gonna say the small problem, percentage. Yeah, what about their problem now? What do they see when they go home? But it's interesting to see how many teachers don't actually live in the community in which their students do. Mm -hmm. Teachers drive in and drive out. Teachers don't have their own lively mind. That's a great point. I have a, a guy I went to high school with who is a music teacher at a small town where I grew up in upstate New York, and he lives several towns away because he said, I don't want to run into my students. So, you know, there you go. So how do you, how do you work and past that? How do you get? Wrong with that. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's nothing wrong with it. But, but for that person who drives in and out, why don't you ride the bus sometime? Why don't you go and meet the business owners who are there and find out, be interested, have the lively mind. What's going on? What can I bring to my students that's relevant to them today? That's what's required. It's a, it's extra work. It mm -hmm. is. Sure. So you're going to create the next batch of teachers that are going into the STEM and STEAM fields. So you, you, you create yep. them, you send them out, they go out to do what they do. How do you continue to engage with them 
from the collegiate level after they leave to help and make sure they enforce and engage kids into both the STEM and cyber fields. So once you send them out there, is there an, is there a continued engagement at, at your level with teachers or I guess, I guess, you know, how does, how do colleges work with the primary and secondary educational fields to, to keep that going or to get, you know, to what they, what they learn from yeah. you to enforce it and bring in, cause you know, the whole thing's going to be in two years, three years, cyber evolves. Uh, it all, all technology evolves. So how do you keep the teachers engaged with that evolution so that they're continuing to push that down so that the kids are involved with the evolution? So by the time they get to, to where they need to get to, that they're still on it. Yeah, that's a challenge. I, I would love for somebody to figure that one out so <laughs> they could bottle it and sell it. Yeah. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Honestly, it's the need you gotta you gotta create the need and the need usually comes from the districts from the parents the parents say oh, we want this and the districts say we hear you and the districts push it to the teachers and then the teachers say but how are we supposed to do it mm -hmm. i mean that's really in my view how it comes down um i also try to connect with teachers i try to keep up with them connections with them um, this is why one, I actually use social media to do that. Um, and I don't use it for any reason other than to listen and to let them know about things that could serve them. Um, I just think that's really important. And, and it's tough to be a teacher. It's always been tough. Yeah. And I would submit to you, it is uber tough right now. Um, you know, I will say this to you even though I'm leaving the Augusta area for my job, I'm not moving. And this is really important. I, I want to serve our two state area and continue to do that. I have a competition that I do and I'm not gonna give that up. And I'm excited because there used to be a national science center that was established, gosh, back in the eighties by federal law. Um, it kind of hasn't been rolling for the last 15 years, but we're gonna restart it and I'm gonna be in it with them. Awesome. And we're going to use that to connect to teachers for this reason. We're gonna offer hopefully nonprofit teacher trainings because you go to a university and that's good, but it costs and it's tough right now. And not everybody gets a scholarship and not everybody wants to take out a federal loan. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are you gonna bring in the private sector folks or people that have been in the industry to help with that. Cause I say that cause I'm thinking of like, how can I, how can I help with that? I, as a former teacher and, you know, being yeah. around cybersecurity for 23 years now, how can I help that group? How can people similar to, to, you know, to me or in this field or whatever, how can they, how do they support that? How can they support that? And is it something that's all over the country or is it, you know, specific to your area that you're building out? The National Science Center was developed to be a national mm -hmm. science center, sure. to serve the nation. Um, it is definitely something right now that I am working to get collaborative support. Um, I'm specifically not writing grants. And I'll tell you why. Cybersecurity, along with the other STEM disciplines, what we know to be true is that it's reliant upon collective wisdom and community. There's no way one person can keep up with what the heck's going on in cyber. That thing is changing by the day. You've got to connect with the people in that field. Has to happen. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if we're going to prepare enough kids, young adults for that workforce, 
You got to connect them with the field, period. And so in my view, this National Cyber Center should really start as a community, and I'm using the word community at large. It's got to be a community-owned endeavor. It has to be. With buy-in, the competition that I did was called Steamify. We will be rebranding it because I'm no longer with Augusta University, but it it was a community endeavor supported 100%. I didn't get anything from the university to support that straight up. Mm. In fact, they charged me to use the facilities. 100% was supported by community. And that's the way it really needs to be in my view. So you mentioned connecting yeah. on social networks or social media. So I'm I pretty much the only one I use is LinkedIn. Pretty much. Are there any groups on there that can that are that are designed to bring the private sector community and people in the cyber world with t educators? And if not, can we create one? Because I would love to be part of it. Yeah, yeah, I think we should create one. I've actually been um, planning that. So as a part, when we roll out this new um, National Science Center, which should happen within the next month or so, mm. um, it, it, it definitely needs to happen that way. We are, I'm actually working with Savannah River Nuclear Site to be able to bring a problem from them to K-12 teachers that's grant funded. Um, the teachers are then giving it to their students you see, they work the problem themselves, then they bring all their standards alongside and bring it to their students for a whole semester. Would love to do that with cybersecurity and it can totally happen. And let me tell you what, this year we have three teachers. Do you know how many students we will touch? 750. Great. You don't have to have 30,000 teachers to affect a bunch of kids, right? So, um, that's really key to remember. One teacher probably teaches five to six different classes of kids of 25 to 30 kids. Mm -hmm. That's a big touch. Um, and so, yeah, we need to do that with cybersecurity. And right now I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is at iSteamProf. But yes, we do need to get together. And oh gosh, Darren, I'm going to be reaching out to you. Maybe we can do it together. Yeah, let's do it. That's, that's not, I mean, that's, that, that would be, I'm all for helping teachers, especially because, um, do you follow K126.org at all? They're a, um, no, cyber, right yeah, K126.org. They're a big cyber protection firm. They, they're a nonprofit and they do a bunch of guys. I had Doug, Doug Levin, um, is the guy who runs it. I've had him on the podcast before. And they do great mm -hmm. research on attacks on schools and stuff like that. And I think, educating like the stuff you're doing to educate teachers that, you know, the teachers want to educate the students. But if you educate the teachers as to the cybersecurity things going on in order for them to help the students, it also helps protect the school because schools are huge yes, targets. Does. So you are building basically your own defense force by doing what you guys are doing. Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause you know, that occurred to me in the light of all of the crazy amount of shooting that's been going on. Mm -hmm. And here we are, Texas, another school shooting. And that's, it's awful. But I also think about from a cyber aspect, that is, that is horrible. It can devastate people's lives, you know, this way. And, um, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's got to be dealt with. 
you know, but the teachers have no idea, really. They right. really don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I, like, it's funny because I, I, so I developed a, a cybersecurity program for teachers for schools. And so I was a teacher in Orange County and Seminole County in Florida. Those are the two counties I worked in. And I have right. a friend who's still a teacher down right. there. And, and he knew people in the executive offices at both schools, plus a third district. And they got millions of dollars in, in funding from COVID and stuff to do cybersecurity stuff. So I reached out and said, Hey, look, I have yeah. this, I have this cybersecurity for teachers program. You know, I'd love to offer it, you know, give yeah. it to you for free, just try it out and let me know if it right. works or not. They wouldn't even respond back to my emails. I probably thought I was nuts, whatever, but who cares? But, but I mean, the, I, I tried to give my bona fides and I know this guy who knows you and here's what I'm trying to do. And I could like to work with you together. Maybe it's something we could develop and push it out. I did it to my, the school I graduated right. from. I emailed the, I emailed the superintendent. I graduated from the school. My mom taught there. I didn't get a response back from them. I emailed my college I graduated from. Now it's different, different president, but whatever. I mean, I graduated there with two degrees and said, here's what I'm looking to do. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, do it for, I'll do it for free. Just help me out. No response back. So I, you can't, it's the problem is you can't give away this stuff. I don't know how to break through that cycle. Right, exactly. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I just got off that meeting in the ITEA group and we were talking about the same thing. How do we get to the people who need to know, right? The people who need to know are the teachers. Mm -hmm. They really are. As long as they're teaching their standards, uh, you know, bringing that in in the effective way. Now, some districts don't let them do it. Don't let them bring it in in that effective way. So this is when you need an administrator, a school level administrator who is willing to stand in the gap. You need people who are brave, who are willing to say, my teachers have got this. I trust them. I'm, I'm, I'm holding back that higher administrative person and I'm going to, I'm going to protect you and you do what you need. You do and be that professional. I mean, it's really, we've emasculated teachers terribly mm -hmm. and we need to elevate right. them. We need to, you know, they're, most of them are professional. They just are doing it because they right. love it and they love the kids. And I'd say looking even beyond just yeah. even the public schools, I mean, the private schools have the same issue, but what about the homeschoolers? I mean, you have all that, all those kids that can be, uh, be, be touched as well. I mean, my kids were both homeschooled. Um, and that was my wife and I are both teachers, ironically. Um, and my wife just said, yeah. Hey, I joined the bureau and we moved to Charlotte and, and a lot of, to a right. lot of different things. She's like, I think I want to just homeschool now and I want to be near the kids. And it right. worked out great. Kids are well-adjusted, fine, whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying, right. you know, homeschools, you know, the, the, the end of the world, but I'm saying there's all right. these different areas. And with COVID has shown that online education yeah. will, can, can potentially work. So you're talking about one teacher yeah. teach, seeing 25 kids, six periods a day. Well, with remote stuff, you could have one teacher talking to thousands at a time and you could have a much exactly. larger, much larger influence over those, those, that area. But I mean, I think my last question was on the future, but I think we've addressed the future here pretty, pretty, pretty well. And I think, I think you're in a great position to help yeah. focus that where that future needs to go. And hopefully it's not just in South Carolina and Georgia. Hopefully it's, it goes nationwide, no. but how, how big is, that's, a, that's an interesting question. How big is your network of people like you trying to do all these things together? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you that competition I was telling you about, mm -hmm. we had people requesting to join. So we did it hybrid. We had some that were synchronous virtual, some 
um, events and some that were face-to-face. -face. We had people requesting to participate as far away as Egypt. Wow, that's great. It's happening. People want this. They're looking for it. But the difference is you have to have a culture of saying, yes, let's do it. Let's figure it out. Not a culture of, well, we've never done it that way. So, <laughs> yeah, God, no. I, do, I hate that. Right? Yep. Yeah. I just, you have to have the culture of yes. You have to be dedicated. Um, but I'm also proud to say that during that competition, we had 200 volunteers that came out for the day that were all industry. And I mean, like cyber, um, engineering, arts, and teaching everybody out there making a difference for kids across Georgia and South Carolina. That's what I want to do with the National Science Center again. Engage everyone. It's all of us walk, working together to solve this terrible jobs thing with cybersecurity. Good grief. That's I think I, recent numbers, just 700,000 jobs. I think it's like two minutes, even higher. I think it's, I mean, we are trying to hire, we cannot hire to save our lives, but that is a great, great place to stop because that'll leave us somewhere to pick up in September when you come to Huntsville for the National Cyber Summit. And I can find out, A, how's the your science center going? How is your paper received? Yeah. And uh, how far along are you on solving all these problems? So <laughs> those will be the three things for September. Darren, Darren, I can't wait. All right. Thanks so much again. Appreciate your time. So I want to thank Ashley again for taking the time to uh, talk to me on the Cyber Guy podcast. We will talk to her again in the future. Uh, at a minimum, we will talk to her at the next Cyber Summit, which is happening in a couple year, a couple months. Sorry, in September, uh, the Cyber Guy podcast will be broadcasting directly from the floor. Maybe this time I'll do it live. I'll figure something out to do there, but uh, I will at a minimum talk to people and and bring you those interviews with people from the cyber industry. I do want to end on a positive note in that there was a successful dismantlement of a Russian hacking botnet this week, according to the Justice Department. So this is a Reuters account. Um, and it says law enforcement in the United States, Germany, the Netherlands, and Britain dismantled a global network of internet connected devices that have been hacked by Russian cyber criminals and used for malicious purposes. The network known as the RSOX botnet comprised millions of hacked computers and devices worldwide, including, and this is the big thing, Internet of Things gadgets like routers and smart garage openers, the department said in a statement. RSOC users paid a fee of between $30 and $200 per day to route malicious internet traffic through compromised devices to mask or hide the true source of the traffic. It is believed that the users of this type of proxy service were conducting large-scale attacks against authentication services, also known as credential stuffing, and anonymizing themselves when accessing compromised social media accounts or sending malicious emails such as phishing messages. So credential stuffing is essentially, on the dark web, you can find lots of records of usernames and passwords and a large percentage of those still work because people continue to use the same login password combination as they log into their bank accounts their social media accounts their email accounts and all that so that is why credential stuffing is successful because people don't have good password management so if you want to know how to do good password management check out my last cyber smart um podcast because i do time to talk about that with that, I will let you go for the week. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to download, listen, tell other people about the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm here to help protect everyone to in 
improve your information because knowledge is protection. If you understand the threats targeting you, you can assess your risk appropriately and you can proceed wisely online. If you have questions, email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com. I respond to every email in a very timely manner. And I love hearing from people who have suggestions, thoughts, or comments on the podcast or suggestions for future episodes. With that, enjoy your week. We will talk again soon.